Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Connecting Israel to Jewish communities around the world. The Holocaust is one of the defining events of modern time jewelry. As we get farther from it chronologically, and as eyewitnesses pass away, we risk forgetting events, details, and the story itself. I'm Dr. Afrat Sofa, and today in Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress Israel, we'll be exploring the profound impact of the digital era on how we remember and honor the Holocaust. We will be speaking with Ambassador Coletta Vital, chairperson of the Center Organizations of Holocaust Survivors in Israel, and with Yaniv Rosenberg, a media relations expert. Join us as we delve into the power of technology, storytelling, and education to protect the memory of the Holocaust and foster a world that values empathy, tolerance, and peace. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. We're honored to have a distinguished guest with us, Ambassador Coletta Vital, a remarkable figure who has dedicated her life to Holocaust remembrance and promoting understanding between cultures. Colette is herself a Holocaust survivor, the story of which she told in her autobiography, The Girl with a Red Tie. She's a former member of Knesset and diplomat, and currently a prominent advocate for human rights and peace, a member of the executive with the World Jewish Congress, chairperson of the Center Organizations of Holocaust Survivors in Israel, and Vice President of the Conference of Material Claims Against Germany, and Secretary General of the World Jewish Restitution Organization. Hello, Efrat. Good to see you and to hear you. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to be with you, even though you're in London and I'm in Tel Aviv. But this is modern technology. It's amazing to have you on this podcast, Colette. First of all, because you have, you know, you've dedicated your life to Holocaust remembrance and I think to doing it in your own way. And I always say this when I when I see you, I, I used to watch you um, when I was a student, when I was doing my BA in Los Angeles. I used to watch you on TV and to think, oh my gosh, Colette Avital does it so beautifully and so in such a, a feminine, beautiful way. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And um, so, so for us to be able to be, you know, friends and colleagues, if I may say, is just such an honor and just such an inspiration. And it's, um, I think, part of the magic of the WJC that it brings people together like this. Thank you, uh, really, uh, for saying that. Um, and, and it's really a pleasure to be here with you today. I haven't dedicated all my life, but only a short part of my life, because for many years, uh, like many other people who went through the war, uh, my parents brought me up to live a normal life, and I actually dedicated my life to defending my country uh, mainly in the diplomatic service. And the issue of dealing with Holocaust survivors and Holocaust remembrance came to me late in my life when the Holocaust survivors themselves decided that this is what I have to do. So somehow many things in your life come not as your own choice, but they choose you. That's what happens, I think. And I think um really found the perfect person for it because um, 
someone who communicates things as as eloquently as you do uh, is is a perfect medium for for honoring what the Jews went through during the war and the yeah. the utter horror and the utter all, all the destruction and so to, for, for it to have a fitting memorial is um to have someone who can communicate it like like yes, you do but you also have to think how you do it and i think by the way and and if i may i think that today it's probably more important and more needed more necessary than in the past not only because the time has elapsed and not only because there's growing ignorance but because there's again uh, a, a, a huge wave of anti-Semitism which after the war we had thought would never exist again. So um, anti-Semitism, not exactly Holocaust denial but the rewriting of history of certain countries. So dealing with the issues of the Holocaust, but mainly with the lessons of the Holocaust, has become very much a priority. Very interestingly, I find that there's a crossover also into foreign policy within the Holocaust remembrance sphere, where anti-Semitism rears its ugly head in 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 many areas. So it's not area specific. So you have it in Iran, you have it in Europe, you have it in the United States, unfortunately. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon that way, isn't it? Well, I don't know if I would call it interesting. I would call it a painful thing because it's a long, it's it's uh, it's it has been lasting for many hundreds of years, and and uh, uh, we know the history of it, and we know. Uh, when the excesses of of anti-Semitism were present, where that led. So what is worrying is the fact that in many cases it's part of the local xenophobia, but in many other cases it is accompanied with a lot of violence. And um, But I must say one thing, and that's the big difference, and the big difference is that at least governments, most of the governments, certainly not Iran, but European governments and the United States have all developed strategies, have all appointed special uh, emissaries or special envoys who deal with the issue and who try to fight against it. Many countries have adopted laws. So it is not an anti-Semitism that is led from the top or by the country, and not systematic. It is a phenomenon that has to do with also with the rise of the extreme right in many countries, certainly in America, certainly in Europe. You have today parties, unlike in the past, uh, in, in a few countries, whether it's Austria, whether it's even Romania, that have, and, and certainly Germany, which is a phenomenon that is worrisome, uh, of fascist neo-Nazi parties in power and they do not hide their ideas, their ideologies and their policies. So I think that this is the phenomenon which accompanies and which triggers also or which encourages anti-Semitism. And it's a battle that we we constantly face and it's something that I think all begins with your work of enshrining the memory of the Holocaust. What do you feel is the greatest challenge facing those who are seeking to enshrine the memory of the Holocaust in 
in Jewish and human consciousness? Oh, there are many challenges. Um, I think the first one is the great ignorance that we find, whether in America or in certain countries in Europe. I was reading an article yesterday about how the Holocaust is being taught in German schools. And I found uh, the interview with a, uh, w with a teacher very interesting because of the methods that he uses, trying to get children or students to understand the difference between seizing power and getting elected. But that is right about, let's say, governance. But I didn't see anything of what he does about the Holocaust. And I think that somehow, in many cases, it is evaded. And I believe that the first challenge is really for the next generations, the question of what you teach and how you teach. And one of the challenges also is the fact that the Holocaust survivors are disappearing. Uh, it is a species, if I may call it that, um, with all due respect. Slowly, I see every day in Israel 30 Holocaust survivors dying. I'm dealing now with a program to help Holocaust survivors to get pensions from Romania. And between the time when we send them the certificates and the time when they receive it, yesterday we got 30 envelopes back of people who died. So when you do not have the people who can say, I have been there, and who are the witnesses, it will be probably much more difficult. So for those of us and for the institutions who deal with Holocaust remembrance and Holocaust education, uh, the big challenge is what exactly are we going to do after the last of the Holocaust survivors will no longer be with us? And there are many ideas and uh, there are many techniques, some of which we like and some of which we may not approve, but this is what's happening right now. So I would say, for me, at least the biggest, biggest challenge is education. I think it's amazing where, where you're going with this and it would be interesting to know how how you feel these new technologies, how appropriate they are. What do you and the survivors feel are the most appropriate ways of memorializing using the new technologies? Look, there have been some very good um, programs uh, that have been on social media, mainly on TikTok. Uh, whether it was a famous singer who... Uh, went back to Poland and told the story of her life, and she has millions of followers. And the way she presented it and the way she told it, uh, whether it was in short segments, uh, it was something which I found very moving, something very emotional. So I think that that kind of uh, program uh, and and uh, there have been other programs before. I think that those are very useful. However, you know, we are we're having a problem with the democratization of social media, because in as much as we can use them, and we try to use them, and many times we are successful in using them, there is a lot of hatred. There is a lot of fake news. There is a lot of. Um, really anti-Semitism that, that is happening on social media. Now, we had 
I mean, the claims conference, for instance, and I know that also the World Jewish Congress had many dialogues with Facebook uh, and asked Facebook to, in a way, stop or block some of these hateful contents. There are certain countries where there is legislation against hate speech. That is not the case with social media. Uh, some legislation starts existing in Europe. So it's very difficult. Just yesterday, I, re- I read an item that Twitter, the new Twitter X, Elon Musk does not want to censor any kind of, of uh, expressions, including anti-Semitism. So that is a source of worry. So on the one hand, you can use the social media to spread your story, which is important, and to try to educate because this is the nature of the media. On the other hand, we have to understand how much hatred and how many lies are being propagated on the social media. And with the freedom of speech, there's nothing you can do about it. Absolutely. And when you join that with the need to um, communicate the complexity of the story and the need for nuance, you're you're facing a, a, a rough terrain, I would imagine, in having such a short space of time. Yes, but look, the history of the Holocaust is not a history of nuances. I mean, it's the absolute evil. So I think that the first message has to be a very strong one about the importance and the sanctity of human life and the fact that people don't have a right to do what and what they did to the Jews, but also where hatred can lead. And there, I don't think we should look at nuances. Maybe the nuances have to be Uh, with regards to what lessons do we learn, because the lessons that are learned by various people are are quite different. Some of them speak about international tolerance. Other ones uh, say that uh, we have to be stronger uh, or we have to be uh, good soldiers for Israel to defend our country. So this is where the messages differ. But I think that, look... I I like to to think that up until now, we had the responsibility and we still have the responsibility to remember. But I think more than anything, the biggest challenge is not only the responsibility to remember, but the responsibility to remember responsibly. I mean, from remembering to remembering responsibly. What exactly is the message that we're going to carry and to be to bring to the next generations? What exactly are they going to see in their books, if at all? Is it going to be one page of history, which will be narrated in a very matter-of-fact way without any kind of lessons attached to it? Or is it going to be taught also not only in the history books, but also in civic learning and so on? And that very much is an all-encompassing task. And conveying such a difficult subject matter in, in, in short-form content, whether it's technologically or in textbook, can be challenging. What are some of the obstacles that you faced when trying to present the complexities of the Holocaust in in such a condensed fashion and to an audience which 
many may know very little about the context of the Shoah and the history in general. Well, uh, I had to choose exactly what I have to say and how I say it. And, and I don't think that this belongs only to the social media. This belongs to going to a class in Germany or in France or elsewhere. And you try, therefore, if you want to um, bring about the complexities, I think that one of the things that you may want to use is relevant examples for the people themselves in order to be able to understand. Now, what are some of the complexities, for instance? Uh, there were good people, but there were bad people. Most of the, We're speaking of the bad people, but we have to speak also of the good people. And therefore, bring about some kind of a message that people have a choice, that the choices are difficult. And one of the best ways is to bring a case to a student where he has to make a choice and ask him, okay, if you were in that position or if you were in that situation, what would you have done? What would you do today? How would you behave? And I think this is the best way to present the complexity because there are fears and there are don't touch me and it's not my problem. Uh, let others do it. Uh, so you have to be able to convey some kind of a situation, even if imaginary, where you put a question to a student, okay, you're in such a situation, what is your choice? And maybe by that you confront that person with their own uh, conscience. And that is the way that, that you really internalize the, the choice between good action and bad action and that i would imagine it's it's yeah people have to feel that they're touched that you touch them that you you yeah. give them the choice that you make them responsible for in some some way for their choices so i think that this is the best way to convey complexity certainly to a public that is not aware that is new that certainly to young people i know that for instance yad vashem has opened a new facility in the Negev, in one of the army bases. And it's a fantastic facility. It's a kind of a mini museum. Uh, but because it is in an army base and the uh, clients, so to call, the people who would come there are soldiers, uh, the education is really totally focused on what their choices have to be. And I've seen the way this is being done, and I think that this is an excellent way to educate. And very impactful also. Yes. In, 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 in so many ways. And thinking about it on a macro level, how do we, you strike a balance between accessibility and preserving the integrity of the subject matter? I don't know. I really don't know how to strike a balance. Uh, but my hunch is that um, today people don't have the patience, most of the people don't have patience to read very long texts. Uh, the youth doesn't read newspapers. And uh, it is in academia or when you're a student at university that you get into more of the research. So if you want to strike a balance or if you want to be accessible, 
the message has to be short, clear, concise, but powerful. And it, something comes to my mind. I think one of the best ways is also to use associations. Even though that may sound a little bit crazy, I'll give you one example. When the Palestinians wanted to uh, become, how should I say, popular and to gain the uh, Hasbara, the information or the propaganda game in France, they used one word, resistance. Now, resistance is what the French resisted against the Germans. And it was such an association, it was such a brain, excuse me for saying that, it was maybe not their idea. I know who, who gave them that idea. It was a French Jewish writer. But the moment they said resistance palestinienne, they already had half of the French people with them because resistance was something that they could associate with. So we have to try to find ways to 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 make associations for people. And in the very short text that we have, even though the subject is so complex, I think more than the facts, you have to put the facts, but you also have to put what motivated people, how, how this came about, why this came about. That has to be part of the message. Indeed. And speaking of, of impactful words and finding resonance, for some years now, the WJC has advanced the slogan, We Remember, which has gone viral around the world and has reached millions of people, uh, Jews and non-Jews alike. What aspect of the Holocaust in particular should people remember and how can we avoid the slogan becoming banal and devoid of any real meaning? I think that this slogan is extremely important because it is short, it is remembered, and people associate with it. I think that um, it has to be followed also by more. Uh, and, and look, the fact that uh, it is short and raises so much curiosity among people who, who, don't, who didn't know about it before. So they see, we remember, they are told what it is about, and probably many of them will open Google and try to understand more. So I think that this is probably what we're trying to do. But, but the fact that so many people do sign up means that they're not ignoramuses, that somehow the message has reached them. When collaborating with so-called influencers who may have had not a direct connection to the Holocaust, how can we effectively translate it into something relevant to their own audiences? So how can we, in a way, help them become a medium for communicating? Well, that is happening already. I mean, it's it's being done. It's I've just talked about uh, a few minutes ago about this singer who's forgive me, I don't remember her name right now, who has done uh, a series of 10 segments on, on TikTok. And she went to Poland and she went to the places and she spoke about them. So all the youngsters who are dead crazy about her songs and follow her all the time, we had 
over a million people following her on those trips. So I think that um, you you cannot do it with somebody who will not associate with it. But look, um, even Schwarzenegger came out with a very strong message. Hello, everybody. I want to talk to you today about the rising hate and anti-Semitism we've seen all over the world. And he is not a Holocaust survivor, but he comes from the other side. And saying what he has to say, coming from a country like Austria, is extremely important. He has so many followers. So if somebody like Schwarzenegger comes and, and fights against anti-Semitism and says what happens in his country, because he knows it, that is extremely important. And I think that in a, just a few short words, people understand. And that is the power of technology and social media in a way. Technology, but also of, of, of celebrities. Definitely. And I think celebrities are usually followed by the younger generation, by the young people. When I was a child, I used to collect pictures of, of Hollywood uh, actors. So today it's a different story, but today people are following the social media of all these actors, Hollywood figures, singers, international singers. And by the way, we have had also very sad stories with French rap singers who were anti-Semitic and, and used the fact that they were popular to, to continue and, and spread those anti-Semitic views. So it has also the other side of the coin. So we have to be able to be aware of those things and, and to fight against them. Definitely. When, for example, I've found in my experience, and I'm sure that you've you've come across it as well, when there have been influencers who have said anti-Semitic things and their followers are many times more than there are Jews in the world. Yes. It's almost an insurmountable um, concept. Well, that is why we are trying to convince the social media that there are certain hate speech, and not only against Jews, but also against others like Muslims um, or, or this thing against immigrants. We, we have to be able, and we've been successful so far with Facebook, I think that we have to be able to convince the social media that they should bar, they should, they should not allow hatred to be spread on the social media. That is certainly a challenge that we have. And I think you've encapsulated it in one word, in, in hatred. It is hatred, it is contempt, it is fear. And do you feel that we have a responsibility almost to pass on this, this knowledge, this methodology to others who have suffered similar genocide. Absolutely, absolutely. For example, you, you may have heard of the WJC delegation to Bosnia with Menachem Rosensaft. And yes. In a way where we were able to help memorialize and to talk about hatred in that way and battling it. Yeah, but there's, look, um, I can give you other examples where we've been active uh, Rwanda. In Rwanda, if you remember, there was a very big genocide by one part of the population, the Tutsis, uh, against the other part of the population. And I have met women who have been victims and women who were uh, raped and 
had to bring to the world children of the people who had raped them. And I think we have to be able to understand, I mean, there's no doubt that the Holocaust is unique in human history and cannot be compared to anything else because of the totality, because of the fact that it is a country that was civilized that wanted to wipe out a whole population and any remembrance of that population, whether it was books or culture or anything that the Jews had done. In the other genocides, that was not the case. I mean, parts of the population were killed not as a result of a well-organized uh, policy. So I think there is a difference there, but we have to be there to try to help and to understand also the other genocides and to come to the help of those people. And, and that's what we've been doing, some of us, certain programs in Rwanda. Even the Claims Conference has done that in Rwanda. And um, I personally was involved at one point with Rwanda. But look, one of the reasons why I think uh, my country, Israel, has not really done the right thing is to acknowledge the genocide of the Armenians. And, and I think that this is our duty as a people who have suffered to also understand the suffering of other people. And, uh, you know, maybe that could be a good conclusion to our conversation. In the year 2003, there was an international gathering of Holocaust survivors at Yad Vashem. And they issued a declaration. And that is a wonderful text because of its meaning, because of its depth. And it says, okay, we have gone through hell. We have come out of the valleys of death. But we do not want other people to suffer. And we do want to impart the lessons that we have learned to other people. And so that with responsibility, with the moral calling that we have comes a certain responsibility uh, and, and come certain values. And those are the values that we want to bequeath to the world in order to make it a better world. So there's no hatred there. There's only the desire to try to avoid in the future what has happened to us. Amen to that. Ambassador Vital, you truly are a legendary figure. My goodness. In the survivor <laughs> community as well as the diplomatic community. <laughs> Is there any special message you would like to convey to our listeners on behalf of your constituents? Well, first of all, I think that uh, your platform, our platform, is that of the World Jewish Congress, uh, which I think is doing an astonishingly wonderful work on so many levels, uh, certainly with the elderly people, but mostly with the younger generation. So I'm grateful for that. And um, on behalf of, let's call it the constituency, uh, that is shrinking and which I represent perhaps here today, I think the most important thing is to see how the Holocaust will be transmitted and remembered in the future in a way that will maybe avoid other similar tragedies. Ambassador Avital, Colette, Shalom, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. 
Yaniv Rosenberg is founder of Y Rosenberg Smart Media Relations and a PR and crisis management veteran. His expertise in media relations and innovative approaches to digital content dissemination have contributed significantly to raising awareness about the Holocaust and its lasting impact on humanity. Yaniv, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Efra. So glad to be here. How would you describe the evolving landscape of Holocaust remembrance in light of new technologies? It really has become a tool of diplomacy almost. What are some of the key ways in which technology has influenced and changed the nature of Holocaust remembrance? Well, before we dive into the solutions and creativity involved in the Holocaust remembrance, I think, Efrat, it is important uh, to give you a taste of what we're dealing with. Let's take a second to speak about the rise of global anti-Semitism. It is important to know that we are facing increasing numbers of anti-Semitism at an alarming rate. According to ADL, anti-Semitic indicates both physical and online increased 36% in 2022 the highest level recorded since 1979. In the U.S. alone, there has been a 70% increase in anti-Israel incidents. In addition, to say that there is still a clear and present danger is a gross understatement. There is a system used by Ministry of Diaspora called Anti-Semitism Cyber Monitoring System And their data shows that in the States in 2022, 400,000 anti-Semitic posts were published by 4,600 users. Wow, that's an astounding number. Thank you for painting the context for us. So now let's talk about the key ways that technology has influenced and changed the nature of Holocaust remembrance. First and foremost, We need to recognize we live in a technological world. Technology allows all generations to stay connected with the past, present, and future. In the past, all our information was obtained through physical sites that we could access, such as museums, movies, books, tours to Poland, etc. In today's world, with just a push of a button, we have the capability to easily access an abundance of information from testimonials of survivors, touring Auschwitz Live, to reading history books, and so much more. In the age of technology, with platforms such as TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Google, every individual has the ability to read and acquire a multitude of information. Can you give us examples of what you mean? Yeah, sure. Uh, Let's talk about Lily Abbott. Lily Abbott is an Auschwitz survivor who has over 2 million followers on TikTok, reading her story, learning her history. Just recently, an historical institution released rare and never-before-seen footage of a film documenting the liberation of the Nazi death camp Bergen-Belsen 70 years after the fact. 
And through the power of social media, it was shared and allowed people to open platform to discuss the Holocaust. Efrat, we simply cannot deny the power and impact of technology. We can use it to our advantage to reach more people in more places in ways we never could in the past. The entire world is literally at our fingertips. The potential here is immense. In your experience, how have audiences been responding to digital platforms and content related to Holocaust remembrance? Are there any notable trends or observations you can share? Uh, so in my experience, audience have responded positively to digital platforms and its content as it relates to Holocaust remembrance. I have found that they are really enthusiastic and thirsty for information and for the opportunity to participate in dialogue related to Holocaust remembrance on the net. For many of them, I think it's sort of a call for action that motivates them to be more involved. Digital platforms make it accessible to all people, anywhere, anytime. For example, 650 million people either participated or recognized the We Remember campaign, an amazing campaign sponsored by the World Jewish Congress, an initiative to raise awareness and encourage engagement across all sectors. 78 years ago today, the Auschwitz concentration camp was liberated. Tell me, how would you feel if there was a concentration camp memorial right next to your home? Oftewel de Internationale Herdenkingsdag van de Holocaust. We remember. We remember the six million who perished in the Holocaust. We remember. The numbers that you talk about are simply immense. It's incredible. Would you be able to just break it down for us so that we understand who responds best, who is affected most? So, of course, first-hand connections to the Holocaust are the obvious audience. But more significantly, digital platforms are an entryway for individuals to broach different subjects and perspectives. So I can tell you that in my experience, I saw it can give a voice to diplomats, to presidents, celebrities. They all can speak on this very important subject. It is another way that can be used to reach out to people who otherwise might not be aware of the information available on the net. Digital platforms give the opportunity to touch huge sectors, regardless of race, age, religion, location, and allowing every individual to experience Holocaust remembrance on a very personal level. In this podcast, we've spoken in the past about the role of anti-Semitism in sport and how to battle anti-Semitism within the world of sport. I guess what you do amplifies the, the role of remembrance and also bridge building at the same time. 
you're able to really bridge between, for example, the world of diplomacy. You have ministers, government leaders, and suddenly getting together to memorialize through the hashtag We Remember campaign, where you and I, for example, were working on presenting the campaign to Galetal in a sports program, the unlikeliest of places. Can you elaborate a little bit about your role as bridge builder in the name of memorializing the Holocaust? So for a minute, I think I'll take off my professional hat and I'll use, you know, just my very personal um, opinions or background. And I'll tell you that regarding your question and building those bridges, I actually think that it has to do with the way I deal with it and the way I feel and and uh, so connected to the hashtag we remember campaign and uh, you know it's probably the um, fact I'm a um, third generation for holocaust survivors and my wife is always laughing at me that I was probably a kid during the holocaust in a past life so I really feel connected and therefore you know it's I, I'm so grateful, and I I feel it also on the other side, like you just mentioned. I feel it when I give a call or write an email, whatever it is, to any CEO or senior person in a sport league or to the um, chief of staff of any uh, minister, UN people, celebrities. And it, it, as said before, it's probably has to do with the way I present it. And sorry if it won't sound modest enough, but I really feel it's kind of shlichut that I'm on a mission here doing this. So when you feel this shlichut, this mission, it's always probably the optimal way to build bridges. It's because uh, uh, my friend and mentor and one of the heads of WJC always says, when you're talking about something extremely complicated, you just tell the truth. And that comes from the heart. And so I think it's, 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 it really does show in your work. Thank you. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Yaniv Rosenberg. Conveying such a difficult subject matter in short-form content can be extremely challenging. What are some of the obstacles you've faced when trying to present the complexities of the Holocaust in a condensed format? Well, the Holocaust is an extremely complex subject matter. Fortunately, in Israel, there is a great awareness and abundance of knowledge on the subject, requiring less efforts when presenting the Holocaust. Doors are open. We just mentioned it before, how people are willing to participate, how they react quickly and and positively. People more open-minded and willing to hear and accept the truth about the Holocaust. The challenge is to approach this subject in other countries, to relay the impact, the mindset, the horrors, the future dangers of such a monumental tragedy in short form. In my opinion, the key to facing these obstacles 
is making it personal and real for each person. Uh, let's say pictures, for example, or illustrations. In spite of the fact that these images are difficult to see, they are the same images that bring the heartbreaking reality of the past into the minds of the people in the present. For example, people need to be able to access information easily with links. Knowledge needs to be spread as much and as often as possible. Keeping alive the reality of the past is the only way to prevent it from happening again in the future. Absolutely. And what you said really touched a nerve for me because we've recently been on a World Jewish Congress delegation to Bosnia where we helped to discuss and commemorate the Srebrenica massacre. And while every atrocity stands on its own, we were able to share some of the methods that we as the Jewish people use to memorialize the Holocaust. And one of these methods was to tell a story, to paint a picture, when numbers are really hard to understand. How else do you face the challenges in telling this story and memorializing such a hugely um, horrific event in digital form? Earlier, I said that easy access is the key. One innovative method that we have used for the past few years, I think you heard about it and we talked also about it, is to light up two of Azrieli centers one of them with the hashtag we remember, and the other one with the memorial candle. Azrieli is an Israeli symbol in Tel Aviv, which is a central location where there is a great deal of traffic and it's really visible to all. And once it's there, once it happened, once it was lit up, people, you know, took some pictures, they shared it on social media, they added their personal story. I mean, besides just oh, look, uh, hashtag we remember Israeli, etc. They said, I can't stop thinking about my grandfather today. I can't stop thinking about my delegation to Auschwitz when I was in high school. So it lights the spark and gives them the opportunity. Once they see it, you know, they see something live, they see something on real life, and then they take it to the next step, to the virtual and to the social media. And another approach, by the way, was a campaign and initiative to address the chairman of the Knesset in order to get approval to light up the entrance of the Knesset. By the way, this is very unusual because they have never approved any other kinds of symbolism in the Knesset. But once they heard about our mission or our campaign, the hashtag we remember, they made an exception just for this campaign. So in addition, we approached the director of the Department of Combining Antisemitism and Holocaust Remembrance at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Mrs. Ruth Cohen-Dar. She assisted us to reach out to all official Israeli representatives around the globe to light up their buildings or hang a banner to expand awareness worldwide. And in fact, more than 30 embassies participated in this campaign, including India, Czech Republic, Singapore, etc. It's so powerful. 
what a powerful message to send. And visually, it's, um, it was hugely moving for me to see around the world too. How do you strike a balance between accessibility and preserving the integrity of the subject matter? Striking a balance can be challenging because like with any social media, there is the danger of misinformation, such as Holocaust deniers. The right to free speech is a basic right granted to each and every one of us, but we must preserve the integrity of this subject. This, above all, should be of the utmost importance. We cannot and must not allow misinformation to poison the minds of its readers. A shout out to many social media platforms for attempting to monitor what is factual and what is discriminatory. In terms of technical challenges, have you encountered issues related to censorship on various online platforms when sharing Holocaust remembrance content? Personally, I have not experienced any issues with censorship regarding the Holocaust remembrance content. I can say I've never been or known someone who has been blocked or suspended from a site for promoting Holocaust content. On the contrary, I feel most social media sites are open to promoting Holocaust awareness. TikTok, for example, has many reels that deal with the Holocaust, even if not directly. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I guess you heard about Curious George. I have. <laughs> Great. So if you'll see a reels about Curious George writers on TikTok, it will offer you on the same screen a link to the website about the Holocaust. Or it actually says, want to read more? Click here. Why? Because the writers at some point escaped from Europe during World War II. And it's, it's part of their past. It's part of their history. So through the cooperation that I mentioned before with World Jewish Congress, each movie or reel that has to do somehow with the time of Holocaust is connected or linked to the About the Holocaust website. I think it's a wonderful way to give more people more access. And I think that's also thanks to the very thorough work that, that everyone who's so passionate about Holo Holocaust remembrance have been working on together to, to, to make sure that a complete picture is, is uh, painted in this vast world as well. Now, going on to the future... Considering the advancements in AI technology, do you see any potential applications or impacts of AI in the context of Holocaust remembrance? AI is the future. And like other technologies, it has the potential for greatness and harm. On one hand, AI can enhance our access to information and opens up an entirely new world of possibilities. That being said, AI also has the potential for bias when dealing with sensitive issues, such as Holocaust remembrance content. 
depending on who is feeding information into the system at any given time can determine how and what information we receive. We recently encountered an Israeli Twitter user who generated images of Holocaust events using AI. Although well-intentioned, Holocaust deniers may argue that Jews using AI in this way are fabricating the Holocaust. Along the same theme of technology, can you provide some insights into the utilization of virtual reality, VR, in Holocaust remembrance? Does VR enhance or diminish the overall experience of connecting with this history? What unique opportunities or challenges does it present? In my opinion, VR enhances the overall experience of connecting to history because you actually feel that you are in that time period and have the opportunity to experience history in real time. People who might never have been able to visit sites now can feel what Auschwitz was like, for example, or visit Yad Vashem, the Israeli Holocaust Museum, and so many other places. I'll give you an example. Two years ago, in Europe, there was an initiative to use VR glasses. With these glasses, you could see people walking the streets and see synagogues exactly how they looked 60 or 70 or actually 80 years ago on those exact streets. This was done at 12 locations, mostly in Germany and Austria. And it was an extremely unique experience being here in the present in 2021 or 2022. going back in time to see, feel, and experience all the destructions the Nazi inflicted. It is very powerful and meaningful. A way of remembering what was there, relieving it, so to speak, and gives us an amazing perspective into the horrors and events of the past so that we never forget what happened. That is so very important. And I guess where I've encountered it also is as Holocaust survivors are passing away, a way to memorialize this is to also have very realistic recordings of their testimonies and platforms for them to answer different questions. They're using, it's like a hologram. And it's like they're sitting there in the room with you and the the kids will be, or anyone will be able to ask them any questions. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. One of the core values of the World Jewish Congress and indeed the passions of Ronald S. Lauder, our president, is to constantly evolve and stay relevant with a younger generation. It's of utmost importance to uphold the historical integrity of the Holocaust in the highest historical standards so that it's not manipulated or even falsified. Yaniv Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor and pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much, Efrat. 
You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. As we were working on this enlightening exploration of Holocaust remembrance in the digital age, we heard some very relevant news. A video game designer by the name of Luc Bernard has built a virtual Holocaust museum inside the online game Fortnite. Unfortunately, white supremacist Nick Fuentes attacked this initiative, which drew a flood of anti-Semitic comments that led to a postponement of the project's launch. This reminds us of the challenges and responsibilities we face in preserving this crucial history for generations to come. Racist trolls aside, the greatest challenge in the digital realm still lies in ensuring that knowledge about the Holocaust reaches both present and future generations, and the meaning behind remembrance must remain clear and impactful to motivate positive action against intolerance and hatred. Our heartfelt thanks go out to all our esteemed guests, Ambassador Coletta Vital and Inive Rosenberg, for sharing their profound insights. I'm Dr. Afrat Sofa. Thank you for listening. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Jewish World is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. Subscribe for updates on new episodes.